Peace to you. Welcome back to the Naked Truth and thank you for joining me. We are in the book of John, fourth book in the New Testament, um, the last of the four Gospels, and we made it to chapter four. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse one. It's kind of a long chapter, but not a whole lot of red letters. So let's see what we can do. Verse one, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had, get, had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, so it's the narrator speaking here, not red letters. And look how in that one verse, Jesus is referred to as both Jesus and as the Lord. So um, it's um, saying that Jesus heard, I guess through the grapevine, that um, the Pharisees, his basically religious rivals, or at least they consider themselves rivals, had heard that John the Baptist has been baptizing a whole lot of people. Verse Two, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So the narrator here is making it clear that all these people are getting baptized uh, with Jesus present, but Jesus isn't the actual one dipping people in the water. His disciples are. And I think um, whatever the reason for that is, I think one of the big picture reasons would be so there wouldn't be confusion in that generation or future generations thinking that, oh, well, you weren't actually there during the time of Jesus and actually baptized by Jesus, then you won't, won't find salvation or even that you'd have to be baptized by Jesus or that those people who were baptized by Jesus, which again, none of them were, at least according to the narrator here, um, actually baptized by Jesus, then those people would have a, a higher place or special place in the big picture of things. But clearly that wasn't the case because again, no one was actually baptized by Jesus, but the disciples did the baptizing. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So Jesus is on the move. Verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he's um, headed toward Galilee, sort of like his hometown, but he's going through Samaria. And we read on our other daily readings what Samaria used to be. It used to be the capital city of the kingdom of Israel. Even though all the people are called Israelites and also Jews, there were two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And Samaria was the capital city for that kingdom. Jerusalem was the capital city for the um, Judah, the tribe of Judah. Uh, but now, they're, at this point in the narrative in the Bible, they're all collectively called Jews. Um, and Samaria, apparently, since it was um, conquered and then occupied by the Assyrian people, the Assyrian people conquered it and then took the people who lived there out and shipped them to other places. And they took people from other places and moved them there into Samaria, um, basically juggling the populations. So at this point in the story, apparently the people who are there in Samaria aren't necessarily Israelites. Um, verse five, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. So um, we're fixing a location as to where Jesus is, and he's made it to um, um, an area that uh, people from the Old Testament narratives, Jacob and Joseph. Jacob was the person, the forefather, patriarch, whose name was changed to Israel, um, where the whole uh, tribes come from, that name Israel. And Joseph was one of his sons, the one that was betrayed by one of the other brothers, um, and sold into slavery and was the first of the, um, among the first of the 
Israelites to actually go to Egypt, Africa for help. And then um, we went through that whole story of how he became, he went there enslaved, but ended up um, basically as royalty and then played a role in rescuing everyone in the area, not just his own family, reuniting with his own family and then rescuing people all around through the grace of God, according to the narrative from the famine that fell on the land. So that's that same Jacob and Joseph, and it's talking about a plot of ground that apparently uh, J J Jacob, the father, gave to one of his sons, Joseph. Verse, although I don't remember reading about that um, in the um, as we walk through the the narratives in Exodus and the other books in the Old Testament, but it's possible I forgot. Smoked a lot of weed, so it's possible. Verse six. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So that's the same that that same Jacob has a well there apparently, and that's where Jesus has found himself, and he's sitting by the well. A well water, you know, where you dip a bucket into the earth and it comes up with potable, drinkable water, hopefully. Um, so it's the sixth hour, so it's about noon. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So um, why Jesus didn't get a drink before now? Not real clear. Maybe there's no bucket attached to the well that he could lower himself um, and then get water out of. Or maybe he just did it just for this reason, to have this encounter with this woman. Um, and now that he's having the encounter, he's asking her for a drink. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is separated from the disciples because they've gone on a food run. Verse 9, then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So, um, like I said, people were taken out of that area and relocated to another area during the Assyrian conquer and um, conquests, I should say. And then later, um, when the um, Babylonians conquered the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, when they were conquered uh, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, their citizens were taken away and shipped to other places. And the people in other places were relocated to there, probably to subdue everyone and subject everyone so that they, uh, they're in a strange land. They'd have to seek help to try and make it and sort of be a little more less organized, I would think, would be one of the reasons for moving people from their homes and re relocating them somewhere else and humbling them, I would think, is a big part of it, too. Um, not real sure. It doesn't say why the Assyrians and Babylonians did it, but um, they did it. And so this woman, she may be of uh, Israelite heritage, um, but she's living in Samaria and she's clearly not identifying herself as a Jew. She's identifying herself with the nation there, with Samaria, um, not um, uh, her any Jewish heritage. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, oh, so before we move on, so she's saying that um, she's asking him, how did you have the nerve to ask water a drink from me when we don't even deal with each other? It'd be sort of like how in some religions um, women aren't allowed to, uh, say, interact with men. They aren't allowed to gather in men's conversations. They aren't allowed to be out in public um, without a man with them. 
Um, but that's just like the examples that come to mind. Um, but it's not just any one particular religion. Lots of different religions have their different dogmatic uh, rules of what women can do, what men can do, what they can do together, what they can't do together, just as an example. Um, so as one of the things, apparently, she knows that uh, apparently with the um, Jewish dogma, um, the ones in the Bible, the different rules and stuff, they aren't allowed to interact with um, a woman from Samaria. And again, I don't know whether that's because she's uh, maybe some other nationality um, and just relocated to Samaria or if she's also Israelite. It's not real clear, but she clearly has no love for uh, Jewish folks as she clearly sees Jesus is. And he's probably wearing something uh, like African people have kente, not African, but some African nations have kente cloth um, that makes them identifiable as African. Hebrew people, Jewish people also have different things that they can wear that sort of let people know they're Jewish, whether it's a Star David or the Yarmulke or whatever the case may be. Jesus is clearly somehow obviously um, Jewish. It's not, it's just not stated here in the narrative. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is saying, if she only knew the opportunity that she had right there, she's getting a chance to do something that generations of people for millennia since then have wished we had a chance to do, to have a sit down with Jesus, to have a drink with Jesus, to have a chat with Jesus. She's getting to have that and she doesn't even realize it. Um, and he's letting her know that uh, just like he asked her for a drink, if she uh, would just do that minimal thing also, turn around and ask him for a drink, he'd give her something that would spring up to life everlasting. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? So the well again, um, it'd be just like how you see it in like old movies and stuff, like um, frontier type things or in the mountains. If you ever seen, it's like a circle of a brick circle a short brick circle tower sort of at least that's how i've usually seen it and it has like a hut uh, a hut over it and um it's dug deep into the ground you could always google it of course and it has like a bucket hanging over it and you can lower the bucket down into the earth and until it hits that water and then you draw it back up and it's full of water um and that's how people would get it they call it a well so um she notices jesus doesn't have anything to draw the water with so apparently there's either no bucket attached to it or there's a bucket, but there's no sort of ladle to uh, dip into the bucket and actually get water out of it. Um, whatever the case may be, she notices Jesus has nothing to get the water out with. So how is it that he thinks, how is it he's able to tell her that he can provide her with water is what she's wondering. Um, verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? And drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. So clearly she is identifying herself as an Israelite. And she's saying our father Jacob. That's who Israel was named for. That's whose name is Israel. Um, so clearly she is of the tribes, the so-called 12 tribes. And she recognizes Jesus is too. But apparently there's still enough division in the kingdoms that um, she's saying um, that they have no dealings with each other. The uh, people in the kingdom of Israel 
have no dealings with the people in the kingdom of Judah. Even though we've read previously that they're all generally called Jews, she is not um, going by that. She's uh, saying that, no, there's no dealings between the two of them. They're two separate nations in her mind still. Um, and she's saying, who does he think he is? That he's too good to drink from the well? Better than uh, Jacob, the one who set up the well in the first place and drank from it? So she's sassing. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. So um, she, Jesus didn't bother answering her questions or with the question or otherwise. He's making a statement, letting her know that the water she's seeking uh, the water she's thinking about is water that has to be refreshed and renewed again and again and again. You can drink a glass of water right now, and before long, at some point, you're going to need another glass of water. Jesus is letting her know, letting us know, he's talking about something else. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus is making it clear here that he's not talking about water you drink from a glass. He's drinking about a refreshing water, a spiritual water that uh, actually wells up within us uh, when we um, have that source. And presumably that source is Jesus. He's the one providing it. He's the one letting her know he can give it to her. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So now she probably thinks he's a little kooky because he's like, okay, so you got water to give, but you don't have a bucket to get it out of. And clearly you can't get to the well yourself because you're waiting here and didn't get some water yourself. You waited till I got here. And that's so she's thinking, okay, so since you got some water, why don't you break me off some? So then that way, I don't have to bother with a bucket either. I won't even have to leave the house. I'll just have the water with me always. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. So again, Jesus isn't responding to her questions with a question or her statements with a, a question or an answer. He's answering her. He's making statements to her aside from whatever it is she's saying, probably because she is just being sassy and paying attention to what it is she knows and what it is she's used to experiencing and not ready for what it is Jesus is offering. So Jesus goes in a whole other direction and tells her to go call her husband and come here. How would he know she has a husband? Does she have a husband? Let's see. Verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you well said I have no husband. So Jesus asked and told her, made a trick statement to her. It wasn't a trick question because he didn't ask her anything. He told her to go call her husband and come here. And she responded saying, I have no husband. But Jesus is now um, going to reveal himself. He's revealing, beginning to reveal himself to her, his divine nature by telling her that, oh, okay, girl, you're right. You're sure right. You don't have a husband. And you were telling the truth when you said you don't have a husband. But what does he mean by that? Verse 18, for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So now Jesus lays it all out on the line for her with clearly a prophecy or at least being able to see. Just like the seer in the Old Testament who was physically blind but still knew when someone came to him uh, who they were. Even though the person was in the disguise seeking their help, 
the seer, who again was visually impaired, was physically unable to know who it was, but still able to see who it is visiting them. In the same way, uh, Jesus is letting her know, good answer, you don't have a husband. But then he goes into more explanation and tells us and her that she has had five husbands. So there's two different ways she could have five husbands. When we ran over this before, uh, the book of John before, on other platforms you probably remember. Um, there's more than one way that she could have five husbands. She could be, um, like many churches say, a divorcee who's had five husbands and divorced five times, and so now she doesn't have a husband. Or she could be um, a, a widower, widow, excuse me, who's had five husbands and they've all passed away. Like the example that Jesus gave us uh, when he, well, like the example Jesus answered when the religious folks were asking him about the woman who had seven husbands and they all died. And then when they were wondering whose wife will she be in the hereafter. Um, so she could be like that, a widow five times over. Or she could be like myself, a working girl. She could have had five husbands that way, never married any of them, but has actually absolutely had them. It could be any of those cases, or it could even be that she's in a, um, a side piece where she has uh, five married guys that she hooks up with, which is kind of common in modern times, so it probably wasn't all that uncommon back then either, since it was even tougher for women to make it without a man back then. Because like we've read again and again, it's a patriarchal society. The Bible is, other than the red letters, a patriarchal document that exalts men and minimizes women. And women have a hard time from Genesis to Revelation. Um, so any one of those could be the case of how it is she's had five husbands. But even the one she now has, according to Jesus, is not her husband. So to me, that says maybe there's a guy she's laid up with some uh, other woman's husband. Maybe she's a working girl and uh, he's someone who's paying her to be with him. Or maybe um, those are the two that come to mind. Uh, whatever the case may be, she's got a husband now. Jesus is saying, but even he is not her husband. And, he's, and he finishes it up and says, in that you spoke truly, letting her know, even though she was trying to be sassy and trying to be slick, in saying that she doesn't have a husband, Jesus knows good and well, she's had more than one husband. She's had five husbands, one way or the other. And that even now, she has a husband. But the one that she has, even that one, is still not her husband. And Jesus is saying, good answer. So go figure it out for yourself how Jesus knew what it is this woman's been up to. It would have to be himself revealing, Jesus revealing himself to her that he has a divine nature. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So that was enough to convince her, his ability to see, to know what her situation is, whichever one it was. Um, and that was enough to convince her that he has that nature about him. Verse 20, a supernatural nature. Verse 20, our fathers worship on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So she could be saying it there, recognizing she's saying our fathers. So um, presumably, again, either by what he's wearing or whatever, she's able to recognize that he also is Jewish, though he never said it. And she also is a child of Abraham, since she said it earlier, that Jacob is the one who uh, built the well. And she, well, and she's identified him as 
the father, one of her fathers, the fathers. So um, here in verse 20, she's recognizing the kinship, it seems, and wondering now um, what is with the division with one branch, one kingdom, kingdom of uh, Jerusalem, Judah, saying uh, that there in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, where she, from the kingdom of Israel, as a Samaritan, um, have their own place to worship. Because remember, one of the kings in the Old Testament set up two places of worship. They set up uh, one place for the north, one place for the south, for the, both of the kingdoms. A golden cow, a golden baby cow, is what people would go to worship from the north to the south, wherever they wanted to worship. They could go to either one. So she's letting them know, letting Jesus know, that um, that's not the place where they're used to worshiping. Um, and she knows that the Jewish people, the people of the kingdom of Judah, believe that Jerusalem is the place where people should go to worship. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So Jesus is saying all of that stuff is going to be yesterday's news, old head thinking that you have to go in a certain place to go worship and get close to God. Jesus is saying a time is coming and it's actually already here. The hour is coming. It's on its way. A new covenant, a new way of worshiping, a revelation is on its way. And <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus is saying that it's not going to be about making your way to Jerusalem to worship God at all, or even make, making your way to that mountain to go and worship God at all. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So Jesus is saying um, what people, uh, what she's doing in her, um, um, in her uh, religious devotion is um, not really what it's about. She's saying, and he, Jesus is saying, salvation is of the Jews. And that's the one of the sense of using the word of in the, in where you could use it as the word from, that um, salvation, uh, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, is coming from the Jewish people, from the land of Judea, from that area, that that's where Jesus would spring from. Not that salvation is about those people or any one first, uh, particular group of people at all, but it, it's from that group of people, the Jewish people, that the Savior would appear, that it's of the Jews, meaning coming from the Jewish people, but for the world. And he's letting her know she's included in that. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such to worship him. So Jesus is letting, Jesus is letting us know tell through her that uh, it's about to be a changing of the guard, that something new is happening. Even though we've read in the, um, in the Old Testament, or we haven't gotten there yet, but it's in the Old Testament, that there's nothing new under the sun. Well, clearly something new is happening. That's why it's called the New Covenant. So there are some things new under the sun. Um, and in this sense, Jesus is letting us all know that what we used to think was righteous and holy uh, is going to be yesterday's news. Um, because the true worshipers, people who are really trying to find God in in spirit, well, um, we're going to get to that next, who are really trying to find God uh, righteously are going to worship God in a whole other new way. And that that's what God is actually seeking. 
people who are going to truly worship, worship in truth, not in um, men's traditions. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is letting us know, and this is one of the few places Jesus talks about what spirit actually is. We read about it in the in verse in chapter three, it's our last uh, reading, John chapter three. Um, how not everyone has uh, that birth of the spirit. And when Jesus says, be born again, he didn't say be born from above because Nicodemus would have said, how can one be born from above? He didn't say that. Nicodemus replied, how can one be born again? How can one be born a second time? So clearly he's talking about born again, not born from above. And he's also Jesus also let us know that the first birth that any human walking around has is uh flesh born of the water um no water breaking your baby is born um but the second birth the rebirth uh, the born again part is being born in the spirit which everyone does not have and jesus that birth that is and jesus is making it clear in verse 24 that uh, god is spirit with a capital s for spirit um presumably the holy spirit and saying that any worshipers us we modern day believers and back then also and since then have to worship in spirit and it's lowercase s there and in that sense that would have to either be or could possibly be the rebirth that i was just talking about that jesus talks about in chapter three born again uh, but it could also be in spirit like it says in proverbs where the spirit of a man is the lamp of the lord searching all the inner depths of his heart Presumably to see, to shine a flashlight on every situation in your heart, in our hearts, to see whether we're going to deal with wicked righteously or we're going to deal with it wickedly. Are we going to take the elevator upstairs or we're going to take the elevator downstairs? And the choice is ours, but the Spirit is watching to see, shining a light on it so it's clear so you can't say, oh, I didn't realize that. So you can know and see with each decision, uh, with each choice, it's a choice, it's a step in one direction or another. Uh, casting it on the right side of the boat or casting it on the wrong side of the boat and the spirit is there watching uh, in those who have it who have that rebirth anyway to see um, and presumably when there is that born again spirit then that spirit is expecting us to go with what's righteous and to go with what's right not to just go any kind of way and still expect to be taken care of um, that's where the truth part comes in it's worshiping in spirit meaning shining that light on things to see whether you're going to make the righteous choice or the wicked choice and in truth so that you recognize we recognize when we're doing righteously when we're doing wickedly and repent when we do it wickedly rejoice when we do it righteously verse 25 the woman said to him i know the messiah is coming who is called christ when he comes he will tell us all things so she's making it clear that she is of the tribes and she does know about the different prophecies, maybe not thoroughly, but she knows them well enough to know that the scriptures say, or that there is a foretelling of a Christ coming, a Messiah coming, a Savior coming. And she's saying she knows she'll get all the answers then for sure. And she's already recognized that Jesus, she's saying, is a prophet. Um, it's much more than that, but she's recognizing his spiritual power when she said that. And so she's uh, talking with him about the higher things now and saying um, that she knows uh, salvation is coming and when he does, when it does, when he does, all the answers will come, all things will be revealed. 
Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So just like he let her know that she's had five husbands, um, though she thought she was being slick, and just like now she's saying she knows about prophecies of the Messiah of Christ coming, he's letting her know uh, the one talking with you now, the one FaceTiming with you right now, is that one you've heard about, the Savior, the Messiah, Christ. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So now the disciples had returned and they're wondering, what's up with that? Why is Jesus um, chit-chatting with um, a woman? Again, some religions say that's a no-no, it's forbidden. And we've read about some of the different barriers of the do um, the dogma uh, between the sexes in the Old Testament also. Things like if a woman's on her period, she can't touch anything. If she does, it becomes unclean and you have to, you're cited for it. You have to pay a fine for it. You have to make a donation for it. You have to make some sort of sacrifice to make it right. And anything she touched became unclean. You have to make that right and so on and so forth. Um, so they're wondering, what's up with that? Why is Jesus talking with this woman? Uh, verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men. So the woman didn't hang around to talk with the disciples and uh, answered her questions about why Jesus is talking with her. She hid it. She left and she's gone into the city and conversing with the men of the city, telling them, verse 29, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So now when she says that, all things that she ever did, that sounds like when Jesus told her she's had five husbands, that Jesus was looking back on her distant history, her distant past, and calling to mind, bringing to her remembrance uh, all the different relationships, whether they ended in death or divorce, or however they were, whether they, the hour was up and they had to go, or whether she was the side piece to some other married man, the five husbands she had, however she had them, Jesus was able to call, able to call those to mind, not even knowing her, that she thought she didn't know he knew her, but he knew her, just like Jesus knows us all. And that was enough to convince her. Now she's gone to the city and let all the men there know that there's somebody out there who's able to see. There's a true-to-life prophet out there who's able to see beyond what's obvious and see through any facades you put up to him. Verse 30. Um, and she's saying, could this be the Christ? So saying, could he be the one that we have heard about in the scriptures that is to come, that was to come? The same one that other nations, including the three Magi, remember, or the Magi who came and brought Jesus uh, at his nativity, um, the gold, the myrrh, and the frankincense. They were not of the Israelites. They were from the East. They were presumably of a whole other nation of people. And yet they also knew of prophecies uh, and even down to the date of when Jesus uh, was to appear and they showed up on the scene. So the woman also has heard of those different uh, foretellings, prophecies um, of the coming of the Christ and presumably so have all the men, um, the men in the city that she's talking to because otherwise why would she asking, be asking them could this be the one fulfilling those scriptures, fulfilling that prophecy? Verse 30, then they went out of the city and came to him. So her word was enough to get the men of the city to go out and have a come to Jesus moment. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, 
rabbi eat. So while the woman is in the city telling the guys, the people there, uh, I ran somebody who can see, who really has spiritual vision. Um, and they're on their way now to go see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples who were wondering why Jesus was even talking to women in the first place is now at, trying to get Jesus to eat something. Um, they're addressing him as rabbi, uh, which is translated as teacher in the Gospels. Um, they're urging him to eat something. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. So now Jesus is throwing some spirituality onto the disciples now. Because um, they're offering him food, trying to get him to eat. And Jesus is answering them uh, that he has food to eat. Um, and this was before, uh, as far as we know, fast food restaurants or even uh, refrigerators and deep freezers and lunch boxes where you could carry your fresh food around with you or carry food around with you and keep it fresh. Um, so they're wondering, well, we've been into the city to get food because we didn't have any. And now he's been out here in the wilderness talking with this woman. And now he's saying he has food to eat, which they don't know about. So they're probably completely clueless, wondering what is he talking about? Verse 33, therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? So again, they're wondering, well, how is he talking about he has food to eat when we went to go get food and he was here alone talking to this woman at the well? Uh, so they're wondering who brought him some food. Maybe he ordered some movie. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is saying there that what he feeds on while, presumably while he's here on his mission in the flesh, on earth, his ministry, what he feeds on is sharing the good news gospel, these red letters, sharing the chance of salvation with all who he can, whomsoever would accept it. And that's what feeds Jesus, at least according to verse 34. And he's saying that that's what he's uh, sent to do, um, do what it is he was sent here to do, and uh, finish that work of spreading the gospel, of presenting these red letters so that we could have them now, almost 2,000 years later, to reflect back on and presumably, hopefully, God willing, find life through. Verse 35, do you not say there's still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. So Jesus is saying that in the agricultural sense, um, you can see when it's time to plant, when it's time to uh, reap, when it's time, you can see when it's time to reap, when it's time to sow, when it's time to harvest. He's, Jesus is saying now, According to their uh, own human measure, it's still four more months before harvest time. Um, I would think that's summertime. But Jesus is saying the harvest is now. You're thinking, he's letting them know you have to think on a different level. You have to think on a higher spiritual level, not just the physical, what can I eat level. And he's saying because of the harvest on the spiritual level, the hard time for that harvest is right now. And he's saying, look up at, look, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. Presumably that's because while he's interacting with the disciples, the woman is headed back toward him with the people from the town who she told about Jesus and his ability. So once they look up, almost certainly, there's a crowd of people from the town headed their way. And Jesus is saying, this is the moment for the harvest. To, uh, he's going to go into it further, 36. 36. 
and he who and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together so jesus is saying here that the harvest time is now that there's plenty of people seeking that salvation the seed he planted spiritually with uh, revealing to the woman that he knew she had five husbands was just the seed she's gone and spread that to the people in the town and now just like that there's a harvest of people seeking what it is seeking jesus they've come to jesus at the well seeking him thanks to the small seed he planted with a revelation to the woman who had the five husbands um and jesus is also i believe saying here that um, in working our part in the kingdom, in the big picture of things, that's our way, even me and you, of um, reaping good things and rejoicing in the harvest with Jesus and the disciples in the hereafter or whatever moment that we interact spiritually, divinely with that um, part of the kingdom, that that's our way of taking part in it and also sowing those seeds with people we encounter in my case that's what i'm doing the naked truth for even though it doesn't reach a whole lot of people um it's not about the number of people it's about the right people hearing it so it is what it is so um similarly jesus just reached out to the one woman and now she has um, provided a bumper crop of um harvest for jesus and the disciples to take part in presumably more than disciples um, since Jesus already planted the seed. That's where Jesus is saying, he who, um, that both he who sows and who re he who reaps may rejoice together. Jesus did the sowing. Now it's up to us to do the reaping, to uh, gather people to the kingdom as best we can by letting our own light shine. Verse 37, for in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. So, um, like I was just saying, but also in the sense of, like we've talked about before, um, that people find God, um, that seed is planted to know that there is a hereafter, that there is a God, that there's more to the world than just what we perceive with our eyes in many different ways. Not everyone who's a Christian now was always a Christian. Some people were agnostic. Some people were other religions. Some people weren't um, uh, weren't faithful at all, didn't believe there's a God at all, didn't know if there was a God, lots of different ways. And then at some point in life, something special happened that made people believe um, that, okay, maybe there is a God. And then eventually leads people to uh, righteousness. So the, the planting can happen many different ways, many different directions, even unpredictable ways. Um, but the sowing, I'm sorry, the sowing can happen in any sort of way, but the reaping, the actual growth and seeking righteousness, seeking Christianity, seeking God um, can happen all the way. Like Jesus tells us, the earth yields crops by itself. He himself does not know how. So different people have different experiences in their walk through the world. And in those experiences, that's what actually leads people to either reject Christianity as just any other religion and lump it in with all with all the other religions that have proven to them to be false for one way or the other or not for them for one, one way or the other and um, they not make it but a percentage of the seeds that are sown will make it 
not the greater percentage, just the few who find it according to Jesus. But those few are what it's all about. Uh, verse 36, I sent you, I 38, excuse me. I sent you to reap that for which you've not labored. Others have labored and you've entered into their labors. So um, Jesus is letting the disciples know that he's sending them for into the field to do that uh, reaping, to do the work. Others have already laid the groundwork and now it's their turn, the disciples' turn to do their part in collecting the harvest just as the disciples then um, witnessed to the people they were on trial with, the different synagogues and authorities that um, some of them were put, most were put to death, but they testified and presented them with what we have now as these red letters through many different editings and filterings, but it's the same thing. It's the it's not the exact same thing, but it is the testimony, uh, a record of the testimony that the disciples gave way back then so that they were preserved to modern times so that we too could take part in the labors of the kingdom just as the disciples did so that we can all rejoice together. Verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So again, the clearly the crowd made it to Jesus and the disciples just as Jesus was answering their questions about who brought him something to eat, because now it's making it clear here, the narrator is that many more people found the faith, found um, their faith in Jesus once they um, heard Jesus speak. After, so clearly they made it to him. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they refused to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So they didn't reject Jesus there, they wanted Jesus to stay, and he did. Uh, verse 41, and many more believed because of his own word. So he stayed with them two more days after they asked him to, invited him in, and many more people were converted um, by hearing Jesus' message firsthand. Verse 42, then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we have heard, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So Jesus was to give them a mighty powerful sermon, or maybe even just hearing his um, more of his testimonies and interactions with them. Whatever the case may be, it was enough to persuade them to find salvation and to see Jesus and know that he was that same Christ that was prophesied before in the scriptures that both kingdoms, all the tribes, and even beyond, knew about, because remember the three magi, they also showed up, so they knew about the prophecies also, and didn't have anything to do necessarily with the scriptures that the religious authorities were uh, having people herded with. Verse 43, now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. So Jesus stayed where he was invited for two days, now he's on the move, on to Galilee, just like he was before, excuse me. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So um, that's reflecting on another um, gospel teaching, red letter. So what Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Um, actually, I think that was um, 
John chapter 6. So we haven't gotten there yet. But the narrator here is uh, clearly reflecting on the gospel preachings of Jesus, teachings of Jesus, that people who knew you uh, originally aren't necessarily, are probably going to be the last to accept you for how you are now. Whether it's because they knew you in your old ways uh, and they just don't believe in new ways or whatever the case may be. I use the example of transgender people being a perfect example of this in the fact that no matter how you change, transition physically, you may even have the full-on GRS, uh, the gender reassignment surgery, commonly known as a sex change. You may even do that. And the people who knew you before are still going to call you by the pronouns they knew you as before. No matter how convincing or passable you are now, people still know you as how they knew you before. And I used to take offense at that until I realized recently, sometimes that's just how it is, how it's hard for people, not whether they accept you or not, it's hard for them to accept the uh, things like a name change because they're so used to calling you that. That's where they're used to knowing you by. And an example of that I remember, that I remember was when I first um, was a kid and I realized that uh, my mama was called by different names. I called her mama, um, but I noticed other people would call her by her first name. My daddy would call her by pet name. Um, her siblings would call her by yet another name. And I remember, why are they calling you these different names when I call her mama? But it took me a while to realize you can call their people by lots of different names, but it'd still be the same person. Um, I guess uh, somebody could be known as Bob or Robert or Bobby or a, it could be John, Johnny, even Jack. It could be lots of different names, but still referring to the same person. So maybe it's not necessarily out of animosity why people still call you by your other name, um, but just because that's what's in their heart, what they know you by. And I even saw that today when I was flying back home. I saw a trans person on the flight with me, um, really cute looking guy but really loud and um, seemed like he was trying too hard. And then I was like, oh wait. And I kind of noticed some things and I was like, maybe. And then I heard one of the people with him refer to him as her. And I was like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. And it, it, and the, um, it, let, it, it was, it, re, it, it's sort of like, it's just like what I was just saying. They didn't say it, I don't think, with any uh, evil intent. They just knew him as her, presumably before he transitioned, before she transitioned to a he. It was a female to male transgender person. So um, maybe that's just the way to take it with some people. Then other people, obviously, you know, when they're being hateful or being trying to be uh, disrespectful or put you down. But it's not necessarily a case with everyone. Some people, that's just how they know you. So that's how it comes up. They don't mean anything negative by it. And I'm learning more and more not to even, just like the proverb says, don't take to heart everything people say, including your name. It seems more important. Like Shakespeare says, a rose by any other name is just as beautiful. So um, it matters most what you are, what we are on the inside, regardless of what people may say about us or call us. That's not really what's important. We know who we are and what we answer to. And uh, that, I think, is it seems to me to be the more important thing. Anyway, back to where we're at. Um, 
Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So he made it back to Galilee, basically like his hometown. And the people there remember what he did at the feast with the turning water and the wine. Presumably that's the feast it's referring to. Um, so now that they see him back and they probably want to see some more. They probably thinking of it as thinking of it as magic tricks. They want to see some more, um, some more, uh, they want to see some action. Verse 46, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So Jesus is back to Galilee again, like he made the water wine, just like I mentioned. And um, there's someone sick, someone who's wealthy, nobleman, and he has a son who's sick in Capernaum. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea in Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus' reputation has barely sped, spread beyond Galilee um, to um, Sakar, because that's where the woman was who brought the people of that city there from the Samaritan woman, but even to this area of Capernaum, because now someone from there is, has come to Jesus seeking help with his son who's sick, near the point of death. Um, let's see, verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So um, what heritage that man is, it's unclear, it's unstated, but it's just saying he's from Capernaum. But he, wherever he's from, he's seeking Jesus and he wants some help. And Jesus first tells him, um, speaks to, I think, the nature of many humans uh, to wait for seeing, to believe. And um, Jesus is making, is letting us know and letting him know that um, for some people, that's what it takes. If they don't see, they're not going to believe. Sort of like Thomas, even one of the disciples who walked with Jesus basically said the same thing. Unless he sees the print of the nails and puts his finger in the print of the nails, and his hand in the Jesus side after the resurrection, he's not going to believe that Jesus resurrected. So Jesus isn't just necessarily speaking to the person from Capernaum who's seeking help for his son who's dying. He's speaking to humans, uh, humanity in general, I think, with what he says in verse 48. Um, that people need to see in order to believe. A lot of people do. Not everyone, but a lot of people. Verse 49, an old man said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So the guy is like, whatever you have to say about belief and non-belief and uh, all of that, whatever, please just come help um, and do it before my child dies. So the man is clearly desperate for some help from Jesus. That's why he's made it there. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. So Jesus didn't bother to go with the man to go see about the child. Although that is what Jesus does in other instances. But I think what's being shown here is that we shouldn't box Jesus in. And we shouldn't box our own faith in to things working out the way we think they should happen. But instead, just have faith and leave uh, the rest up to God. Leave room for God to act and work on our behalf however God sees fit. Um, because sometimes miraculous things happen. An example, speaking when I flew, I run late a lot. It's one of my biggest flaws. Um, 
you know, other than physical flaws. Um, so I was running late for a flight and I thought I was surely going to miss it because, you know, you have to have a certain amount of time before you even get there and a certain amount of time to get through security and a certain amount of time before they even close the doors, even to let people onto the flight. And I was down to 10 minutes, believe it or not. And I was like, I just know I had to keep telling, stop myself from even thinking it and saying it to myself, anything like I'm going to miss the flight. But I was sweating bullets, basically, but trying to stay faithful. And so I got to through, I got my uh, boarding pass uh, printed. And I was like, how am I going to get through this line, the security line with only 10 minutes to go? By the grace of God, by some miracle, I looked at my boarding pass and I had TSA pre-check approved on my thing, on the boarding pass. I, you could have not blew me over with a feather. However, <laughs> they say that. So immediately, I headed to the TSA pre-check, made it through there in a snap, and raced through the airport with just enough time to make my flight. Truly a miracle because uh, I really didn't see it coming. I really, really, really thought but didn't want to believe and refused to believe that I was going to miss it and didn't miss it, thank God. So anyway, we have to leave room for God to work on how, and however God sees fit on working. And so um, the man here, back to verse 50, um, has gotten the word from Jesus that his son lives. And apparently that was enough. So he went on his way, went on about his business. Verse 51, Jesus didn't go with him, even though that's what the man went to him for, to get Jesus to go with him and see about his son. Jesus just used the word. Sometimes Jesus says it with just the word. Sometimes with just a touch. Sometimes he gives instruction as to what to do. In this case, he just used the word and told him to go his way and his son lives. So with a word, Jesus has healed his son. At least that's what the faith would have the man believe. See how that works out. Verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. So now the man went on about his business like Jesus told him to. And while he's gone on his way as he was instructed, his own servants have met him along the way on the road back and let him know with the same message that Jesus gave him, your son lives. Those three words, the same three things Jesus, three words Jesus used. Now his own servants have met him on the road headed back to let him know your son lives. So he got the miracle he was looking for. Jesus didn't have to go anywhere with him. He didn't have to do anything but be faithful to what it is Jesus told him to do, to go his way. And he went his way and he got what it is he was looking for. He got his miracle. Verse 52. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So um, seventh hour would be about one o'clock. They're saying the, the, the nobleman who's headed back is asking them, when did his son get better? Because now he knows his son is healed, which is what he went to Jesus for. But since Jesus didn't go back with him, maybe he's questioning, well, maybe my son was going to get better anyway. So let me see when he got better. Maybe he got better as soon as I left town to go find Jesus. But the answer that his people, his um, servants gave him was at the same time um, that... Um, well, I guess that's the next verse. The, 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 the servants are giving him the answer that it was yesterday around one o'clock when, um, when your son got better. 
So how will the Lord know if that was actually Jesus' hand in it or just um, by chance that his son just happened to get better? It was at the same time. Verse 53, so the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. So not only was it at the same time when Jesus gave him the message, your son lives, the people who are bringing the good news back to him that his son is alive and well again, brought back the same message of the very words that Jesus used when he, when he healed him, your son lives. So it happened at the same time, even though Jesus wasn't there with them. And it, even the message of your son lives is the same message that Jesus gave him when he performed the healing. So that was enough, presumably, to be fully persuasive to the nobleman and to his whole household because that persuaded them all to find faith. Verse 54, this, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea and the Galilee. So um, the narrator here is letting us know that that's the second sign. Um, the first presumably would be the turning the water and the wine um, there in Galilee. Um, this now uh, is the second sign when he um, performed the um, long distance healing without even having to show up with just being requested for the healing by the nobleman and performing what it is he needed in saving his son who was about to die. Um, that was the last verse. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you. I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.